Good afternoon. Thank you all for coming. My name is Gregory Rodriguez. I'm the founding director of Socolow Public Square. We are a southwestern-based ideas exchange. In addition to publishing high-quality, free digital humanities journalism, we call it every day. We present free, smart events. Basically, whatever city will take us. In addition to Washington, this year we've been in San Francisco, Palo Alto, Phoenix, Tucson, Fresno, Sacramento, and all around Los Angeles. We are a roving public square that seeks to create community around ideas. We pride ourselves on having built the most diverse audience of any civic forum in the United States. And because we believe that community must be built around ideas, we invite you all at every event to have a cup of wine uh, to speak further with each other and with each evening's guests. We invite you all to come to a reception after the speakers have spoken. If you're interested, look us up at SokoloPublicSquare.org or our Twitter ha uh, tag is at the public square. And we're really happy to be uh, in partnership with UCLA over the past year and uh, we've done some fantastic programming. We've explored urgent questions in a wide range of fields from public policy to the economics of sports to medicine. We're really pleased to be here tonight at the uh, National Press Club. UCLA is still the, the, the preeminent university, public or otherwise, in Los Angeles. And on a personal note, uh, although I'm a Berkeley grad, my parents met in Powell Library in something like 1956. So in, when times are dark, I blame UCLA for my existence. If, if you have not already, uh, please shut off your cell phones. And again, uh, please join us afterwards at the First Amendment Lounge for a cup of wine. I'm really pleased to introduce our moderator today, Mr. David Leonhardt. David Leonhardt is Washington Bureau Chief of the New York Times. Previously, he wrote the paper's economic scene column, focusing on the housing bubble, the economic downturn, the budget deficit, health reform, and education, which earned him the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in April 2011. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. David Leonhardt. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us all here. Thank you all for coming out. Uh, on a beautiful afternoon here in Washington. Um, so what, uh, what we're going to do here is I'm going to introduce our, our panelists, whom you probably know already anyway, and then we're going to have a discussion, and after we talk for a little bit, open it up uh, and invite you all to, uh, to join us with, with questions. Um, and, and I'll introduce the panelists starting closest to me. Uh, Chancellor Jean Block, who um, runs UCLA as the Chancellor of UCLA, um, by training a psychologist, although you now have an appointment in psychiatry, right? Um, bridging uh, two, two worlds that often do not get along. That's very impressive. Uh, and um, uh, Chancellor Block spent much of his career at the University of Virginia. Uh, uh, on assignment several years ago, I spent a whole bunch of time out at UCLA and um, emerged thinking that it really has, uh, and wrote, uh, that it really has a claim on being one of the most impressive institutions in American society today. It is one of the only elite universities in the country that is economically diverse. Um, most elite institutions of higher learning have something on the order of 10, 15% of their students coming from the bottom half of the income distribution. UCLA is closer to 35 or 40, I believe. <laughs> Um, uh, next to Chancellor Block is President Mary Sue Coleman of the University of Michigan, um, a biochemist by training who has spent much of her career at the University of Kentucky and the University of Iowa before coming to Michigan. Uh, she has been named to boards um, by President Obama and Secretary Gary Locke when he was the Commerce Secretary involving manufacturing and innovation and issues that are really at the forefront of of our economy today and the way in which higher education can, can play a direct role in terms 
terms of fostering um, innovation. And like UCLA, um, by any standard, the University of Michigan is um, one of the real jewels of public education in the United States today. Next, President Coleman is President Gregorian, who has been uh, a leading figure in higher education now for quite some time. Um, former president of Brown University, former president of the New York Public Library, uh, a historian by training, um, uh, and has now for uh, 15 years? 14. 14 years. Um, uh, that's right, 14 years. Been the president of the Carnegie Corporation in New York and has continued to be um, extremely involved in, um, uh, in higher education and this intersection really between, um, uh, in many ways, government and the private sector, um, which has played historically such an important role in, in innovation and, and in our economy. So I want to start with something that is very much in the news today, um, which is this whole question of, is college worth it? Um, uh, we read stories of college graduates who are unemployed. We read stories of, of large amounts of college debt. Uh, there are things in the popular culture that question whether college is worth it. Kanye West has a song called College Dropout, um, or is it an album called College Dropout, which <laughs> essentially suggests that it, it, it's not so bad to, to drop out from college, it may even be better. Um, I won't give you all the full uh, lyrics. <laughs> um, uh, so let's start there, and, and, and I'll start with President Coleman. Um, uh, what's, what, do, what do people need to keep in mind when they're trying to make this decision about, uh, as parents, should they send their kids to college, and as taxpayers, should they support higher education? Well, one of the things that disturbs me about this debate about is college worth it, I really feel like that you're condemning young people to fewer options in life if they don't pursue higher education for their minds, for the expansion of the mind, for the opening up of possibilities. So I ac absolutely do not agree with the proposition. But I also agree that in the current debate that numbers get thrown around and we have almost been willing to do policy by anecdote rather than agreeing on the data. And the data are very compelling and important here. So I've got some data and I thought, you know, first of all, we need to agree on the data. And I'll try to do this very quickly. But uh, the median debt of students who take out debt, not across all students, but the 58% that take loans when they're in college is $12,800 total, the median. That surprises you because you hear about these absolutely astronomical numbers. The mean, just the average of all the data, is about 23,000, a little bit more than 23,000, all in. Now that tells us that there are some outliers that have a lot of debt, but most people don't. In fact, 72% of those who take debt take less than $25,000. Now these are data that are generated by the Federal Reserve of New York, by common data and we need to agree on the data. Then let's talk about what should be done. Now, that's still taking out debt, and we need to do a better job of educating parents and students about what it means to take debt, how you put packages together, how you manage debt. We don't do a very good job of explaining that, and particularly because many of us are encouraging students to come, who are the first in their family to go to college. So we have a lot of work to do, but I hope that we can get to a conversation where we really are talking about the same numbers 
and then deciding what to do about it. And those numbers are, are uh, they include people who went just to college as well as people who went to college and graduate school, or they're just undergraduate? Yes, they do. And in fact, what we find is that uh, most of the large numbers that you see, the 5% who take over $100,000, are mostly graduate and professional school students, law school, medical school. I mean, we need to worry about that too, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that with any of this conversation that we need to dismiss the issue of affordability of college. We cannot. But I think the, the, the numbers tell us that perhaps we have a different kind of problem than we have been led to believe. And that's you know, leading to covers of magazines that say, is college worth it because it's so outrageously expensive that nobody should even think about going. That's, in my view, that's a disservice to, to families in this country to make those kind of claims. And it's interesting because sometimes those articles don't use those numbers. They use the list price numbers. Right? Exactly. Which, which exactly. Are and, not they, as and, they, and they don't account for the fact. I mean, at Michigan, and it's probably true at UCLA too, uh, for families up to $80,000, it's cheaper to go to college now than it was in 2004. Because we have worked so hard on doing grant packages as well as loans and mixing work studies. So all of us are working hard on this issue of affordability. That's interesting. So for high income, it's essentially become, to use the language of the tax system, it's become more progressive. For high income families, the cost of college has gone up because the list price has and they're paying it. But for middle income families, it's actually gone down because financial aid has more than kept pace. That's partly true, but that also doesn't reflect the fact that for us in public higher education, that states have massively withdrawn support. So that when people ask me about, well, why are tuitions higher? Well, it's largely because the states are taking away support, and in technology innovations are expensive. President Gregorian, what, what do you think people should be keeping in mind, um, both as citizens and as, as potential college students or parents, in this whole question of, is college worth it? Well, first thing is uh, to have a common vocabulary and common statistics. If we don't have, everybody uses and abuses those. And there should be a nation now sophisticated enough with all the computers and so forth. There's no reason why we should have deceptive statistics. We should have one verifiable statistics that every parent, every school advisor, high school counselor, everybody will know and not scare parents, especially immigrants, that you cannot afford this. Second, people don't realize that uh, we have community college system that has been wonderfully built in order to meet certain needs, and then the transfers from those to universities are also saving lots of costs without, nowadays, reducing the quality of education. And the last point I will mention, there is this anti-intellectualism that is prevalent now, that only rich are entitled to have good college education, to be history major, classics major, music major, art history major, and so forth, that unless you have a vocation, uh, you've lost. Now I'm all for jobs, but jobs change. And we go to college in order to learn how to learn, how to adapt. And that's missing. But I, I don't want to see a nation in which we have three classes of students will emerge, citizens. People who have elite colleges, destined to be part of leadership of this nation, not almost a ruling class or upper class, because we're the only nation in the world who has no lower class and upper class, everybody's middle class. <laughs> uh, so, and then we send the others, in many ways, to uh, good luck. The only people I mention, uh, I, not by the way, I, I don't want to speak more about this because I'm very passionate about this. Uh, recently I reviewed a book which said, Dropouts 
you drop out, you don't have to spend so much money on college. So I went and checked that Bill Gates is successful, uh, people that have dropped out have become billionaires. And I found them a handful. But then I asked, where are they sending their children? Well, they're trying to send to all the best universities and so forth. So if they have no faith in dropping out, why should I have faith in them dropping out? Besides, high school counselors and we as parents don't do a good job. We confuse job and career. You may have several jobs for one career. The only ones, if you come to New York, you meet them, waiters and others in various restaurants, uh, that's their job. But their career is to be an opera singer, uh, ballet dancer, and so forth. So we shortchange students that you're defined by the job you hold. And I also see that during the depression of reading, nobody blamed universities for having produced unemployable people during depression. Once depression ended, all of them went to be employed. So I just this linking job and identity and success is shortchanging our students because we also are training, educating citizens, not just social units, socioeconomic units to be processed. How do you think about this? So I, you know, I, I resonate with many of the things that have been said. I think the average debt at the UC system for undergraduates, I think, is 18000 Total debt is about $18,000. So again, it's within the range of uh, what President Coleman mentioned. It's not nearly as great as the numbers you, you often read about. Um, I think the statistics show that I think students who receive at least four-year education, four-year uh, undergraduate education, make over their lifetime about a million dollars more than a person who doesn't receive a four-year degree. So it certainly has economic value. It has enormous value in terms of just a well-educated citizenry. And uh, so you know, I think that this is one where uh, it, it would be, I, I think it's just, it would, for most people, it would be advisable that they get a college education and that we as a country expect students, uh, our students, to, to graduate from college. I, and one way that it seems to me it's important to think about this is that the, you hear a lot of debate of, well, does everyone need to go to college? And it's, and it's worth remembering that, that there was a debate about high school uh, a century ago on the same terms. And we've come to accept, I think, the idea that everyone should go to high school. <laughs> um, and so there's an interesting question, well, why is 13 years somehow the natural limit of education as a society becomes more technically complex? Doesn't it seem like the natural thing actually should be to kind of increase that. Yeah, so you know, I, what I find surprising here is that you know, we've fallen badly the U.S. in terms of the number of college graduates of, our, of, of young people. I think we used to be first in the world, and I think we've flipped the 14th. I think if you look at countries like, I think, Canada and Japan, I think 55% of their young people are going to college, getting degrees. Why we've slipped, I always assumed by the time, you know, by, by you know, 2012, this would just be a value, that it would be that college undergraduate degree is the norm for nearly everyone. So. So when I sort of look at the evidence, the criticism that college isn't worth it anymore seems to me to be a pretty weak criticism. When you look at the amount of debt people leave with, when you look at the massive gap between what college graduates make and everyone else that's at an all-time high, and then you just look at the market. I mean, you mentioned this. Um, ask people, uh, as you say, essentially, who are skeptics of college, uh, what are you going to do with your kids? Uh, they're going to send them to college. Um, but I do think there are some criticisms out there of higher education that strike me as more intellectually serious. And, and, I, and I'd love to raise a couple of those and, and get your responses. So one is connected to that, um, and it's the dropout rate. Right Now, I, 
I realize the dropout rate is at the institutions that m you've spent much of your careers at are not huge problems. Um, although for some of you earlier in your careers, I think they do have dropout issues, higher ones. Um, uh, the fact is, if you graduate from college with a four-year degree and $25,000 in debt, that's probably fine. If you graduate, if you don't graduate and have $15,000 in debt, that might not be fine. And so um, uh, from a policymaker standpoint, what can Washington and what can state capitals be doing to put some more pressure on higher education, community colleges, four-year colleges, to, um, uh, to get better outcomes? Would you like me to take a, <laughs> a, a Certainly, you know, I, uh, even though at uh, UCLA and at Michigan we have very high completion rates, the so students we accept are fully prepared and they do well. The other thing, though, that I think we need to pay a lot of attention to is that the federal graduation rate is in some ways a misleading number because it's first-time students coming into college, finishing at the same institution. That is, if a student transfers, we lose that student. That student is counted as a dropout. All of the community college students who come in to us after two years don't get counted in our numbers, though they complete at the same rates as students who come into NOVA. We know this. I mean, we have the data. So I know that there's an effort now going on nationally to try, through clearinghouses, is to try to track a little bit more accurately the actual completion rates rather than this federal dropout rate, which will, which will help. But that doesn't get to the other part of your question, and that is that we as institutions, I think, need to be much more mindful about looking at best practices, because there's a lot of data out there in research about what predicts success for students, even those students who may not come into your institution prepared uh, optimally to succeed in college. That is, we know that getting students connected early, getting them to work with other students, getting them to work in academic teams, all of these uh, in, are indicators of keeping students on track and getting them to graduate. So what can state governments do? You know, I think state governments can, um, you know, use expectations as part of the funding that they do for higher education to make sure that we have the mechanisms in place to help students succeed. And now we want to make sure that we are tracking things accurately and that we're not penalizing students who transfer from one institution to another. But the fact that this has become a topic of conversation, I know, has generated a lot more conversation in Michigan among all the higher education institutions about what they can do on retention strategies as well as recruitment strategies. So we shouldn't be let off the hook. You know, we should be held accountable. And I think we're all eager to do that. And do you see movement in that direction? I do. Yeah, I, I, would, I would concur with that. First, we've got to get the real data, and we've yes. got to better understand what the completion rates really are, because an awful lot of folks, that, as, as was mentioned, uh, begin college, end up at another institution eventually. And there may be delays. You know, sometimes people stop their college career for a few years. We've got to be able to track those people, because they're successful. They've received their degree. So once we have a better feeling, then we have to focus on those that are not completing their degrees and see how we can, you know, we can provide the kinds of support that will make them more successful. I think the other thing we need to be really careful about uh, is institutions that have really uh, shaped themselves to be attractive to uh, working adults. Uh, oftentimes, uh, people are trying to complete their education holding full-time jobs. And so to have artificial expectations about what they can do to complete, I mean, I know that you know, I've, I've talked a lot uh, about this particular issue to the president of Wayne State University, an urban university in Detroit. Uh, there are many people who take longer to complete degree, degrees. So if you just look at the raw data, 
you would think that, well, this institution isn't doing so well. But people actually, they persist, persist, persist. And if I, you know, look at the impact that that institution has had on the city of Detroit and on the fortunes of many families, it's been profound. And so we need to be careful about the way that we characterize institutions, but we still should demand and hold institutions accountable. You cannot discuss uh, graduation rates and uh, judge higher education while ignoring K-12 education. Uh, Higher education has become, in many ways, remedial, trying to repair work that K-12 has not done. And our K-12 education in this country our, ours is 16,800 different districts, different quality. There's not a single national standard to judge with, yet we compare to PISA or foreign schools. Because we all know there's lead in the water reservoir. But instead of cleaning the reservoir, we give a water purifier to select individual uh, households, and they feel great that they have solved the problem. We have to have massive restructuring reforming our K-12 education system if we're going to get products from universities that are well-trained, well-educated, and also save cost, because you cannot duplicate and you cannot provide part of every higher education cost go to remedial education. And therefore, the two have to go parallel. And that will solve both the problem of the nation. We cannot always import foreign scientists, and now we have to have our own homegrown scientists as well. And at the same time, it will hold K-12 education accountable overall for the nation's health. Those are, that's very important because we're discussing nationally, not locally, so we're not casting aspersions. On, but we have a 19th century system in our country trying to meet 21st century needs. And we don't consider that because it's very hard to initiate any kind of reform locally dictated by university and others. So one of the things I think all the uh, Big Ten and Ivy and all the other colleges, if they set standards high enough to force K-12 to to perform that standards, is going to be one of the solutions for some of our problems nationally. We would obviously have to get the metrics right But granting that, do you think it would make sense for funding for higher education from both the federal government and states to be more tied to outcomes than it is now? Should student financial aid be more tied towards students making progress to create incentives for them to graduate in four or five years? Should institutional um, aid be uh, tied less to just filling seats, which is what it's now tied toward, and more toward progress? Whether it's remedial progress, whether it's graduation rate, whatever it is, um, is there enough performance-based financing in higher education? I'll let you choose. You know, I, you know, I, I sense that, that could be tightened up. I, I really do. That uh, there is a need to expect that students will progress. You know, being at an institution where uh, our progression rates keep increasing each year, they've actually sped up. Uh, we worry a bit less about that. But we look nationwide. It, it is a problem, and, and tying, obviously, financial aid with some understanding that some students, for, for a variety of good reasons, will progress more slowly than, uh, than the, the average student. I think it, it is reasonable to expect better progression, better graduation rates. I think that would work as long as there's a recognition that you know, there are a spectrum of institutions, types of institutions, and preparation of students coming in. But there's no reason why we shouldn't expect academic progression. 
I mean, from wherever you start, you ought to be progressing. You, sh you can't be just collecting, you know, college credits with no, with no sense about what the outcome is going to be. Um, so, I mean, we, we expect this now of our student athletes. I mean, they have to progress academically to still play sports. Well, you know, everybody should be progressing academically. So maybe a good idea. Student non-athletes, too. Well, yeah. Yeah. You bet. I think uh, it will be, you don't want a formula basis. Formulas are easily cheated or easily defamed or <laughs> deformed. I think you have to have other standards too, overall quality of the institution. Because the universities that are represented here is some of the best in the world. And they don't just educate students, but also they provide research for the nation. Scientific research of our public higher education system provides 70% of all these major occupations, engineers and science and others. So you don't want to have a formula, how many inventions have you made this year? Uh, because years ago, without naming a college president, they testified before Congress that every scientific investment will have a immediate results apply, apply, apply application. You can't. Some of it will take longer years. Some of it sound ridiculous. Remember the study of the uh, eye of the mosquito? The senator uh, from Wisconsin, uh, what Proxmire. was Proxmire gave Golden Fleece Award. <laughs> Later he had to apologize because that was fighting for malaria. So I think if you produce everything to formulaic ways, uh, then there is a false competition. And I think that, that portion of investment in the higher education as a scientific center uh, to encourage science and produce expert scientists. By the way, I've never seen anybody say drop out of college who go to see a surgeon who has dropped out of a college, lawyer who's <laughs> dropped out of a college, judge who has dropped out of a college, they all want the best. So that also is a form of how to invest in these professions. Well, it, you know, one thing I would, I would just come back to so it doesn't get lost, something that uh, President Gregorian said earlier about K through 12, is that some of the progression problems are at institutions where the students really are remedial and when, they, when they come in and it, it just slows them down tremendously. And this is something I think higher ed, we recognize, has to be our responsibility as well. We have got to figure out a way to make certain that our, our uh, K through 12 schools are actually preparing students, especially for STEM disciplines. And I'm struck over and over by looking at Los Angeles inner city schools, and looking at the composition of our students in STEM disciplines, how poorly they match, that we're just losing a lot of students who should be the future scientists and, and engineers uh, for some reason, for some reasons, not getting the tools they need to be successful. There's obviously been a huge push in the last few years to try to make changes to K through 12 education. They haven't all taken effect by any means. But uh, would any of you comment on whether you think that push is having any effect, and whether it's a positive effect or a negative effect? Well, what I can give you is the evidence. I was surprised to learn this myself. Is was we've been concerned for a number of years about the numbers of U.S. citizens who are interested in going into engineering. Let's just use engineering as a particular discipline. There's been a lot of talk about this nationally. And I've learned now over the last five years that applications have really been soaring for engineering. And a lot of the interest, there's still a lot of international interest, but a lot of the interest is coming from domestic students. And I think that parents and students have gotten the message 
that engineering is a very, very interesting career, you know, that many areas of engineering that one can go into. And uh, there's a lot, I think, that people see in terms of uh, engineering and biomedical engineering, you know, the pro solving problems of the world and, you know, helping with poverty, that they, that they see this sort of in a larger context for being able to follow their passions. And I do believe that that interest is coming directly from this conversation about us as a country needing more people going into these sorts of areas. And I hope it spreads out now to other to mathematics and to uh, other areas of science. And I, you must be seeing this chance we do. of love. We, we do. But as I said, I, I still think there's a vast number okay. of students in uh, no, our schools that not are enough. not getting the skills they need. Not enough. Right. That's right. There's tremendous progress now in K-12 education in demonstrating and as well as achieving. Now, there are 46 states now agreed to have common core. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very important thing for the first time. It's not national standards, common core. So they were talking the same vocabulary state to state. And second, uh, teacher education is tremendous uh, progress now in science teachers, uh, STEM. Actually, when President Obama challenged 100,000 science teachers in 10 years, we already accomplished 30,000 just through Carnegie and other 125 partners. Uh, and then uh, Institute of Advanced Study and Carnegie formed a commission on the opportunity equation to use science for create opportunity equation. And we're very surprised now uh, how much progress has been made in new math standards being accepted as a result, new science. I was shocked, frankly, to find out that only math and English was required for graduation, but not science. So many high schools now are accepting also science. I'm talking about general high school, not uh, private. My hope will be that they open the doors for PhDs in the United States to teach in high schools. For some reason, we're the only country other than prep schools where you can teach PhD, that after finishing PhD, you can teach in a college freshman but you cannot go teach seniors in high school uh, because you have to take uh, uh, teaching credentials for another six months to teach them. Well, the damage, if you're going to damage, is confined to the people who will go be freshmen next year, so it would not be much damaging. <laughs> so, but still, I think because when they say overflow of PhDs or unemployed PhDs, there's a market to bring them forth to teach science and math in our uh, school systems and breach that class structure that I am fit to teach in college, but you're only fit to. And that brings also a unionization issue, because unions will allow uh, faculty in universities to be autonomous as professionals. They force in high schools and others to be still industrial model in punch card and so forth. So we have also to change that to give some credit and standing for teachers. Frankly, I don't know why anybody will be a teacher nowadays, the pay is small, uh, you're held responsible for everything which you're not, but at the same time, also the respect which used to be there in the 19th century and your great pride, you said your daughter is going to marry a teacher or a rabbi, is missing nowadays. Uh, so we have to also pay a price to hold them accountable for quality, but also respect them as a profession if we're going to fix K-12 education. Let's talk for a minute before we open it up about diversity. Why have top colleges, and I'm defining top there pretty broadly, not just the best 10, 
the, you know, the top 50, 100 colleges, not been able to make more progress in being economically diverse. They've made so much progress in a short span of time in being um, diverse from so many other perspectives. I mean, you, you, you sit in any room like this one and there are people, uh, I am one of them, who could not have attended the college they attended not that long ago. Um, why have economics been the exception? Well, you've been more successful than Michigan, so perhaps yeah. I should try this because we have uh, puzzled over this issue ourselves and in fact done studies about where, the, where is, the, is the blockade? That is, what, what is happening? Because we have a guarantee for every Michigan family. If, you, if your student can get, your son or daughter can get into Michigan, we will guarantee you a financial aid package to come. So, and that guarantee has been in place for a long time. We've tried to take fear out of the equation. Uh, we discovered early on, about 10 years ago, that even though we were putting together financial aid packages, that seemed perfectly reasonable to us, if there was any loan part, it scared away the families. So then we went on a very aggressive uh, strategy to take the loan piece away so that it, certain income levels, uh, you know, below $40,000, no loans. And then the loans are graduated up to about 80,000 or 100,000. So we've really tried to replace loans with grants and that has helped. But in going out and doing studies of families, what we've discovered is that the gap is from the family who won't even allow their son or daughter to apply because they perceive, and these are high ACT scores, these are, not, these are students who could get into Michigan, that they are so afraid that they can't do this financially that they won't even try. And so then it's our responsibility to get out there, to educate, to talk to families all the time about what to do. But I, I, do, I do think there's a fear factor. I really do. So, you know, I would, I would add, uh, and I, I agree completely, the California you know, system of higher education, you know, the master plan that has really a well-articulated arrangement between community colleges and universities and state colleges provides a real advantage for economic diversity because so many of our students uh, come from, our transfer students come from community colleges. About 40% of all UCLA third year and fourth year students are transfers mostly from community colleges. So a huge number of our students are from community colleges. That adds uh, to it. Secondly, and I agree, there is a barrier to uh, parents being worried about their children taking on debt and oftentimes in going to you know an environment that they're not familiar with is again outreach activities and working with high schools and working with parents and we have an extraordinarily large group of people that go out and work in the community that's important and student ambassadors again explaining to students that uh, you'll be welcome and you'll be comfortable because many students and I, I heard this when I was at the University of Virginia from a prospective student who was worried that it at uh, Easter break, they wouldn't have the resources to fly off with their friends for a fancy vacation. They thought maybe this wasn't the school for them. And I thought that's a real barrier, thinking that there's sort of sociological reasons why you wouldn't want to attend the university. So I think breaking those barriers down, very important that students recognize that whatever your income level, this is a place for you. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me one of the, the crucial things about community colleges, given the state of K through 12 education, particularly for the bottom half, bottom quarter uh, of the socioeconomic spectrum. Um, uh, it is not easy for colleges to figure out, in some cases, 
let me put an asterisk on that and we'll come back to it. In some cases, who is going to be able to succeed at, at a school like UCLA or the University of mm -hmm. Michigan based on the high schools that kids are coming out of? And that by taking community colleges transfers, you go to this place, these places that are much more economically diverse. And it is easier after two more years to figure out who is actually going to be able to get through, to, to come through. I assume that's part of the value of those feeders. Absolutely, so you get a better, you get much better predictive value. You no longer have to rely on, on board scores. You can look at grades. You can see how a student has actually performed in a higher education setting. So that's, that's extremely valuable. And the more mature the students coming in. I think we do a better job of those kind of predictions if we know the school. Yeah. Uh, because our admissions people become very adept at understanding the rigor, what the students have done, you know, regardless of their socioeconomic standing. If it's a student from a school that we don't know much about, it's much trickier. And I, then I think you would be right about, you know, being tested at a community college would, would give us a little bit more comfort about the success You need rate. an academic index that A from such and such school is C at UCLA in terms of performance. But how do you do that without advertising and giving the school a chance to reform itself. That's the great challenge. And second thing is need blind admission is much abused in many ways. If I wanted to have economic, I would say, remove all the zip codes, occupational parents, everything, let people apply, you admit, and then open the file to see where they're coming, what they're going to do, and so forth. But that's not realistic now, because uh, there's uh, legacy admissions, there's athletic admissions and all kinds of other issues involved. But it's very important to show that universities still provide chance for economic 20, 25%, and they could do more. And as to how it should be funded, I think there should be a new compact in many ways between the private sector, state government, and federal government. Otherwise, uh, and the parents, of course, uh, uh, the customers, quote-unquote. Uh, otherwise, uh, it's, we're just uh, responding crisis to crisis rather than looking forward for a planned way next 20, 50 years. And I remind my colleagues, in the middle of the Civil War, 1862, Abraham Lincoln launched land-grant universities. He established National Academy of Sciences. Can you imagine any president now say, we're going to do this? People would think he's lost his mind for going this investment, because they knew education is not cost, education is investment. As Derek Buck once said, if you think education is costly, try ignorance. <laughs> you know? So uh, anyway, but that's the kind of frank thought we should have with the public, because we're not in recruitment business, we're in education business. And that's one of the things, I guess, America is still great, in my opinion, providing more opportunity we have, in many ways, nationalized opportunity. We have democratized access. We're now only trying to say how to pay for it. But in the discussing how to pay for it, we should not sacrifice both democratization of access and nationalization of opportunity. And I'm product of uh, American universities, Stanford. Without Stanford, I would not be here today. And uh, hundreds of thousands of people from abroad have come to study there, and many of us have stayed there because America has given us opportunity to study and work. So that's another thing which uh, we talked a little bit. 
We're expecting one million Chinese students to come to the United States. That's wonderful. China does not have enough facilities to educate everybody. But at the same time, we should not also neglect Americans who are born here, all right, or immigrants here, the same opportunity as foreign students were giving. I, for one, was a foreign student I came. Stanford was $750 when I came, 1956. <laughs> Berkeley was $50. So that was really democratization of access and nationalization of opportunity. We have to revisit there how we can do that in many ways to structure. And diversity, uh, diversity, diverse nature of American higher education is great success. And in this whole economic discussion, we should not sacrifice that diversity uh, for uniformity, which may not yield results. In a few weeks, the Supreme Court is going to hear uh, another affirmative action case. Obviously, your university was at the center of the last one. Uh, you were president when it was decided. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I think there are a lot of people who think there's a substantial chance this will, go, this will come out differently from the last one. Justice O'Connor has been replaced by Justice Alito. Justice Alito's past suggests that he um, may be more skeptical of these preferences than Justice O'Connor was. I'd be interested in any thoughts you have about the upcoming case, and I guess I would frame it in one way, which is, does the system of affirmative action that we have, is it the right one? Um, uh, or has it become too focused on certain parts of diversity and not, in some ways, focused on diversity as a whole? Uh, have universities done enough to, uh, to give preferences in admissions to students, regardless of their race, of, of, of lower economic backgrounds, right? So is our diversity essentially a diversity of the elite? Um, or is our system of affirmative action working? Do you want me to start. try to start that? Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, Chancellor Block and I both uh, live in states that have banned the use of affirmative action, uh, even after uh, the University of Michigan, to my great pride, uh, fought all the way to the Supreme Court to preserve it. Uh, I am a huge believer in affirmative action and believe in the way that it was practiced uh, at the University of Michigan uh, was a way that was both very ethical and honorable and uh, tried to create diversity across a huge spectrum from a pool of all qualified applicants. I mean, th this notion that we were somehow giving people a seat who didn't deserve to be there because they weren't qualified was a complete falsehood. And your graduation rate in some ways is our, the and, right. And we had great success and we could demonstrate it. We, could, we demonstrated through research the, the, the absolute educational value of having diverse perspectives in the classroom. And the way that we define diversity was extremely broad and include economic diversity as well as racial and ethical and ethnic diversity. And so for me, when, this, when our state changed the Constitution after uh, the Supreme Court decision in 2003, it was a tremendous disappointment to me. Now, we have worked, ex even though affirmative action is banned, we have worked really hard to keep our student body diverse from many, many different perspectives. But affirmative action, I thought, was a good tool. It was a gentle tool. 
And I've been very proud of the fact that we have permitted other institutions in the, in the country to use it, uh, because I think it's been a great success in, in, in American higher education. But yeah. Chancellor Block? I'm, I'm a big supporter as well, and there's just no substitute for having diversity in, in the classroom. It, all the students benefit from it. You know, in California, again, it's a struggle, as it is in Michigan. We work hard to keep our classes uh, diverse, but it, it, it's a problem. You know, I always remember that uh, Antonio Viragosa, our mayor, who's quite, quite impressive, says he came in UCLA the back door and left the front door. And, uh, and you look at his background, coming from you know, a family that didn't go to college, a community college, I think he started a community college. I mean, it really is inspirational when you see people given a chance and become successful, and that's what affirmative action is about, taking qualified students who might not be the top student, but uh, can make a difference in society. So I, again, I'm, uh, I'm frustrated by not having that flexibility in, in California, but hopefully it will persist for others. I think the Texas case is interesting because it's nuanced. You know, it's yeah. a very complicated, they're very That's different right. from the Michigan case in that, you know, they had a 10%, top 10% plan and then layered on top of that is affirmative action. But, you know, the thing that for me was so perverse about the, the 10% plan is it rests on the assumption that you're going to keep segregated schools. Right. And it's right. only successful right. if you persist in segregation of schools, which we don't think is a good idea. Right. And so I, that, that never seemed right to me. But, but again, the case itself is complicated. I know that there have been just scores of briefs that have been filed right. by all sectors of the society, many of the same uh, groups that we uh, that, that file briefs in the Michigan cases. And so we'll see what happens. But I, I, I haven't given up hope. What would, it, what would happen if the Supreme Court um, banned the use of preferences based on race, but permitted them based on other things? How much less diverse, and I asked you because essentially, you, right, you both can still do preferences based on income, I assume. Uh, your state constitutions yeah. haven't barred that. Right. And so I guess the question is, um, uh, it, the, the nation may be about, may not be, but may be about to go through a version of what your states have gone through. And how much does it change things? It's not a substitute. I mean, uh, the studies that we did uh, found that socioeconomic uh, diversity is not a good uh, indicator of you know, racial and ethnic. It, 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 the two just don't overlap. And, and, and the issue, I, but I mean, you've probably done similar studies. It, so, so we would, we, we, it, would, it would be a loss. So, we, so you, replacing it would still leave you with a significantly more homogenous population based on race. That is my view. Yeah. But, and, I, and I think that's consistent yeah. with yeah. other states as well. There really isn't any other proxy right. uh, for race. And uh, you know, we have struggled and worked extremely hard at, at uh, a class of about 4,800 students, about 200 African-American students entering. That's a very small number, very small number, and uh, nothing, nothing we're proud of. And uh, it makes a difference to the students being the only student in their class that are African-American. It really affects their learning environment. I mean, numbers make a difference. They really do. And uh, so it, it's a challenge. And it's not surprising that there's no proxy for race because we are not a race-blind society, right? Meaning either historically or as social science tells us today, Right, so in some ways it should not be surprising. Yeah, I, I want to insist from the beginning, it's a joke, <laughs> so you will not take seriously, and I don't want to be quoted all over the country that this. <laughs> Recently, uh, a very conservative, rich acquaintance 
asked me this question, do you believe in affirmative action? We were talking about Berkeley. And I said, I do. Uh, why? I said, don't you think 65% of Berkeley is now Asian? Don't you think whites, males, should have a chance to get to Berkeley? <laughs> <laughs> then he was completely lost, because we are insisting on the one hand to accept on only scores. But when those scores are going the other way, then we say, what are you doing for diversity? So, so that's a very important point. I was uh, jokingly put it. I, I told him, I'm not advocating not to accept, as far as I'm concerned, entire Berkeley could be 100% Asian. There's no problem. But when you say, uh, why is so unbalanced? Well, because they're good, academically good. And you're saying, accept only on the basis of academic achievements? So we've done. Then they say it's not diverse enough. And then how you create diversity. If I were talking a lawyer in front of the Supreme Court, I would have said this question. If in the United States is a microcosm of humanity, and on the basis of achievement alone, can you have uniformity in a place? If not, why not? If so, why? Justify it. So that's one of the things. Uh, I mean, he was surprised I didn't say women, Latinos, and uh, African Americans, when I said whites. And then he was taken aback, because that was the point he started first. Anyway, so... To tie together two strands of our conversation, it's really striking to look at um, uh, how much girls and then women outperform boys and yes. men in, in, in every... They're smarter. Let's concede that. I mean, right? it's, uh, <laughs> I, mean I, I believe it's literally now at every, at every level. I believe yeah. that girls are more likely to... Uh, graduate high school, they're more likely to enroll in college. Yeah. They're, given that they enroll, they're more likely to graduate. Um, uh, and what ties this together is, if you look over the last 30 years, men's educational attainment has essentially remained stuck in place. The typical 30-year-old American today is only marginally more educated than his dad. Mm -hmm. The typical 30-year-old woman is vastly more educated than her mom. Um, and what's happened over the last 30 years, men's wages have remained stuck in place and women's wages have increased after adjusting for inflation something like 25%. Education isn't the only thing going on yes, there, right. but, but it's a biggie. Yeah. Um, I think we, we still have a couple more minutes than I thought, so I wanna, I, now I want to hit on the final thing before we open it up, which is um, uh, this whole question of resources, right? Y y you know, at a state level, states are groaning under enormous health care costs, huge pension retiree costs. At the federal level, it's actually in many ways the same thing. They're groaning under huge health care costs, the costs of, of, of this financial crisis, um, the costs of Social Security in an aging society. Um, uh, given that, um, and given what we've already seen, how do you have, in, I would imagine, hope? <laughs> how do you have hope that society is going to devote the resources that it needs to, to, to education, and what do you think that could look like, given the fiscal realities? I'll start with you, as so, the Californian. You know, I think, you know, and we've watched this very closely in California. I mean, the state, since California in particular, is going to be a very slow recovery, so I do not think they're going to have much, by the way, of additional resources to put into higher education for some time to come. You know, the federal government, uh, again, struggles with some of the same issues, but I think we have to make education, higher education, a sufficiently high priority that as resources do become available, uh, it takes from the top. It literally is so, it's such an important part of us being successful as a society. We've got to place it at the very top. And then this private industry 
the private sector is that you know many private industry labs have closed and they now look to universities for that research but many haven't invested very heavily in universities they certainly license our technology but often don't really invest in the research that uh, gives them these great these great uh, products I think we're going to have to look for industries and companies, well-to-do companies, to help support higher education, public higher education. You know, in California now, there is an effort to look towards the larger corporations for some support for students, and I think that's very reasonable to do that. So again, I think a, a partnership, a renewed partnership between the federal government, uh, private, private companies, and universities and states are going to be critical. Yeah, I, I really believe that absolutely is that compact is broken, we need a new compact. And there are Everybody has a piece. The states have a piece because there's been massive disinvestment from the state level. I mean, I, when I look over my decade at Michigan, I, it, I just, it takes my breath away at how much we've lost in terms of resources. So the states need to, and we, we understand that it's going to be a, perhaps a modest reinvestment as the economy improves, but we have to be on the agenda that the federal government needs to do its part. I think private industry needs to do its part. I mean, I think about it, you know, all, this private industry has sort of gotten a free ride, gotten all these great people uh, that they can hire. Well, they have some responsibility, too, to make sure that they're seen, that people have opportunity. And then philanthropy. Our, our, our donors are stepping up as never before, and I think as we explain to them uh, what we need in terms of need-based financial aid, there's been a tremendous response from our donors, and that's terrific that we need to keep explaining that. But we have a responsibility, too, to keep controlling costs and doing things that will help make us more efficient as, as necessary. I mean, we've had huge changes in our health benefit. Our, 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 our employees are paying more than most private industries. We've kept our health care cost. cost. I, will, I will put our health care cost per person up against any private company because we're doing better. You know, we've saved money on energy. We've saved money on the way we provide services, on the way we do IT support. And that's, that's fine. That's our responsibility. You know, and we need to keep doing it. But we need everybody else to step up, too, and to create this new way for us to be successful. Because otherwise, we're going to lose the global race, and I don't want to lose the race. <laughs> I believe we have to have a new social compact between government, private sector, state, federal, and local authorities. Candy Rice was here, I think, with Joel Klein. They gave a speech, education being a national security issue now. It's no longer just, wouldn't be nice to get an accreditation. We still are looked upon as the best system in the world system. So it's 150 years investment, multi-billion dollar investment. We are a major industry, maybe fourth and fifth industry, higher education. So we cannot neglect it and we cannot water down. It's easy to add more hot water to the soup and put some Tabasco, it doesn't taste good, without meat. We cannot do that. It's a serious business, it's an investment, we cannot just waste it. So we have to find a solution. And I think the world needs our universities, we need our universities, our nation deserves it. I have only one recommendation that our universities now for prestige and other purposes are opening branches all over the world. I welcome them. But we should also collaborate with each other in this country. Our universities have to collaborate. They cannot always duplicate. They have to collaborate and create regional, national consortia. And because we are in a major competition all over the world. And until now, we managed it. 
but we cannot manage without this new compact with everybody, and long-term compact, not presidential election to presidential election. Because look at major phases of American uh, higher education. Morrill Act, 1862. Then we have, during World War II, Vannevar Bush, future of science in America, changed the entire instruction of science. Then we have GI Bill, most masterful uh, solution, how not to create another depression by bringing millions of uh, soldiers to get education, which transformed American higher education. We have 1947 Truman's Commission. We have all the Cold War title this, title that, six, and so uh, which we made crisis. But we should not always just meet crisis. We're a mature nation, we should plan ahead how to stay ahead and how to provide quality higher education. Not water down for the poor, for the immigrants and others creating a two-level system in our country that we will have this group will be always educated, cultured, and that group will only deserve to a vocational. They don't have to talk, because we also have to emphasize citizenship. People do not come to America for work alone. They come here for freedom, to appreciate our constitution, to become individuals, to retain their uh, heritage, and so forth. We should not forget that. If it's only vocation, Many totalitarian countries had the best-run system. They ordered X number to study railways construction, Y amount uh, to study allied health, and everybody was busy, total employment. We're not in employment alone. We're also about free citizens with yearnings. We're not socioeconomic units. We're also spiritual beings with yearnings. And all. We have to emphasize nature of education, that which distinguishes us from the rest of the world. Now it's time to take questions. Turn it over to you all. Um, if you have a question, please raise your hand and we'll come to you. There are two of us going around. Um, please say your name into the microphone. We are recording this. It'll be online on our website tomorrow, sugglopublicsquare.org. And I think Jennifer has the first question in the back. First question to your left. Okay, my name is Jerome Dances. I'm a um, retired uh, mathematics professor from the University of Maryland. And the view from the, the universities is that students are showing up knowing considerably less arithmetic and algebra than they did 10 years ago and 20 years ago. Um, but I've heard from, the, from Virginia Tech University, so I guess, sorry, Virginia Tech in Princeton, that the, the engineering students know considerably less algebra two than they did five years ago. It's, it's, not a, it's not a static situation. It's important that you talk about the differences. Back when I went to, to college, the um, students spent 40, 40 hours a week on homework and classes. Now it's less than 30. Uh, we need to raise the education level. That's college that providing back to where it was long ago. So please talk about the changes over the last 10 and 20 and 30 years. 
seems to me there's as far as the education goes, not just you know, the money and stuff. Thank you. There's, there's sort of two questions here. One is the amount of time students have spent studying. And the data strikes me is that I've seen all points in the same direction there. They do spend less time studying. But tell me if you disagree. Uh, on on the, the kind of achievement stuff, I mean, my impression is not that, that these longitudinal tests show that students enter college today knowing less than they used to, but that it's not rising at the rate that it used to. But you all are much closer to it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess my sense is that uh, the problem we're facing, and again, I, you know, maybe I'm, I'm being uh, too naive about this, is the students entering UCLA seem to us to be extremely well prepared. And I'm not sure there's much evidence that the students aren't as, as well prepared as they were a decade ago. My concern is more with the large number of students out there that are graduating from high school that aren't prepared, the proportion that's not well prepared and, and have not, and, and that may be growing. I mean, that, that is a concern. And, uh, you know, that may represent, again, having, not having all the teachers in K through 12 with the right skills to teach math at the right time. You know, I've heard reports, and I think this came out of Teachers for New Era, something that uh, uh, President Gregorian was, was central in, in uh, creating a program uh, at a number of universities that if students in fourth and fifth grade don't learn fractions well, it's unlikely that they'll do well in algebra. So the tracking begins very early. So again, whether teachers in fourth and fifth grade have the right skills to teach fractions that guarantee that students will be more successful, you know, there may have been a change there. I mean, as we educate a larger number of students, we may no longer have the skills to provide that kind of background. You know, I, I agree with the, you know, certainly the notion that for those foundational skills like mathematics, that if you drop behind uh, very early, then you will never be able to, to catch right. up because the foundation is so important. And I know that we have you know, tremendous research going on at, at the University of Michigan about math education as far back as the third, fourth, and fifth grade and preparing teachers to, to take what is a natural uh, curiosity for young students about mathematics and, you know, nurture that curiosity rather than sort of subject them to a boring subject that they will never progress in. I have not observed and I don't hear from the faculty about under-preparation in engineering and, and math, so I don't, I, I don't quite see that. But I share your concern that we are losing vast numbers of students in K through 12 because we are not getting them excited and we're not giving them the tools and demanding from them <laughs> the performance that you, you know, we know they have to have to be successful. Yeah. So I think that's part of this, 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 this worry that we have that, our, that the standards are not national, that we're not, hard, we're not persistent enough, and perhaps our teachers are not prepared yeah. well enough. But you have been really involved okay. in this area. Yeah, well, we are uh, math and science teachers now are being given the kind of tools that they did not have nationally, and also statistics also at the same time. We have uh, data which I'll be happy to send to anybody who's interested on that, but standards are rising. It is, ri it is rising. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, Matt and, uh, I have, let me put it another way. I have been surprised at one thing, maybe that's uh, my, will be my answer to you. Uh, people are very much interested in technology, but not science. Hmm. And I thought 
technology will be the Trojan horse through which we can teach science to our students. <laughs> but I have been mistaken there because people uh, know how to use it, but they don't know what's behind it. And uh, the same thing, I think we have benefited on the other end because of computers, uh, computer science. We benefited in raising mathematical uh, statistics, even though applied math, which is anathema for pure mathematics uh, professor teachers, uh, because they thought it was lost some of the beauty of it, queen of sciences. But I'm very hopeful that uh, we're catching up there, um, uh, and we have data to prove it. I actually majored in applied math because pure math was a little too beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> My name's uh, Mike Cullen with the Education Writers Association. So this could be a follow-up to the first question. Um, we know that uh, uh, student uh, interest in college uh, um, suffers when there's the fear of not being able to afford it. And recently, or not recently, in July, I think the Institute of Higher Education gave this proposal on how to make uh, college affordability more, more obvious to families, benchmarking it the same way that we would benchmark um, how to afford healthcare or, or homes. It's not based on how much money you have now, but here's the 30-year plan. If you make these monthly investments, voila, you have a college education that you can afford the same way you have a mortgage that you can afford or healthcare that you can have. Um, so do you see a push toward this benchmarking, standardizing how we understand college investment, that it is an investment, that it is not an upfront cost, et cetera, and will that translate into more interest in higher ed? I think that's a fabulous idea. And everything that we can do to provide new modes of education for families to be able to calculate the long term, both the investment, the cost, how you're going to manage this. And we do this, we do this for cars. When you buy a car, you sort of know what you're going to have to pay for the car over a period of time. And certainly we could do it for higher education. And I welcome, welcome those kinds of approaches and analyses. Ditto here. I think you know, real transparency is important for parents to understand what the costs are, what are loans, which component are loans, which component is other forms of aid, and, uh, and what it means to be paying that back when you, when you graduate. And uh, we need more information. And uh, I think benchmarking it so the information you can compare between institutions is actually would be very valuable. I'm well aware the media has a role here, um, but it also seems to me that um, it would be useful if higher education, the college board, that if, if, if schools went out of their way to try to focus people on the actual cost number. Yes, right? I agree. Because I, it's, it really is a more important number. Yeah. I yeah. mean, does it matter what mm -hmm. a house was listed at or does it matter what you bought it at? It right. matters what right. you bought it at, right? right? Yeah, um, yeah I you're, couldn't agree more. Question on your left. My name is Keith Parker from UCLA and I have a very simple question. It's November 8th, 9th, and you have a call from the successful candidate. The candidate says, Chancellor, President, I need your help, I need your advice. What do you say to him? Well, I, I took a stab at that, at least with our sitting president a few months ago when I wrote him a letter <laughs> and uh, uh, gave him my two cents worth about a new partnership that might be forged. Uh, and uh, and, and I, it's the same partnership. It's the part. It's the new. It's it's the the reinvestment by states. The the sustaining of the 
uh, student aid commitment from the federal government, the participation of corporate America, uh, the philanthropy community, and then our own responsibility to be vigilant about finding cost savings. And with those five partners, I believe that whoever is the next president of the United States could have a winning formula for reviving public higher education in this country. Yeah. I, I, would, I would agree with, with all those points. I'd also say that if the president could be a, really lead the effort in sort of focusing attention on the needs for public higher education and actually become a spokesperson and uh, a rallying point, that would also be helpful. So sort of lead the campaign to focus on the need for supporting higher education, especially public institutions. I will say you certainly do need help, <laughs> first of all. Uh, <laughs> but uh, joking aside, uh, 2008, uh, we brought together 47 uh, chancellors of universities, public higher education in New York, and we wrote a letter to President Obama uh, to use the stimulus through higher education for infrastructure of our nation. And we said it, a word I had never heard before, shovel ready. Uh, it was ready to go. Uh, so instead of going to uh, abstract ideas, here are all these universities with uh, uh, laboratories, with high engineers and others to bring state governor and the universities together to start reconstruction of American infrastructure. Uh, well, it was not followed, uh, because if it had followed, we would have had Detroit long before taken care of at the time. So it's very complicated, because it's a matter of choice for the president now. Everything is investment. Jokingly, I also said, since Condi Rice said it's a national security, I said, why don't we put the entire higher education in the Pentagon? <laughs> national security. I was joking at one, but I'm not, because if it's a security issue, uh, how can we leave something with national security alone without integrating, see what parts of it is national security? Do we need X number of scientists, X number of engineers, X number of foreign language speakers? Because we, are, we, are re we respond well to crises, but once the crisis is over, then we go into neglect of the problems till the next crisis. Sputnik, we responded very well. Uh, now, uh, we need somebody else to challenge us so we can respond well. But this is not the way uh, we could afford in the past duplication and waste. We cannot afford now. So no matter what, which one, who is president, they have to bring, in my opinion, the best talent we have here, along with their colleagues, in a retreat to say how we can do this. Uh, here is the University of Michigan. They advise corporations what to do to save their businesses. But why not University of Michigan to be brain trust of, along Michigan State, of State of Michigan, to advise the governor and legislature how to fix some of this? There's this uh, gap between theory and action. So I think that's another thing, how to form the alliance, what universities can do to transform the state's economy infrastructure and other things. There's that kind of trust because states are investing in you, federal government is investing in you, private philanthropy is investing in you. In return, you're educating people and institutions, but why not also be active in the nation, reconstruction of their nation? As much as law permits, as much as expertise allows, 
as much as your will permits. We've got time for one more quick question, but all of our panelists will be at the reception, which will be held in the First Amendment lounge. So if you exit here, make a right and make another right. It'll be right there. We have drinks, food. Please join us. Our panelists will be there and can answer the rest of your questions. And now for the last question. Sure. I'm Martha Cantor from the Department of Education. Oh. And uh, listening to all of you talk, I was thinking back to the investment 40 years ago of the Pell Grant program and how just in the last three years, we've increased by almost 60%, uh, from six million to almost 10 million, the number of uh, students from low-income families who are enrolled in your colleges and universities today. And so I was thinking about, you know, what would it take to create a social compact? Uh, this was a case where the government in the last couple of years made a Pell Grant investment. Congress came together. The president signed the law. It's in place. It's having tremendous effect on students uh, from the lowest income families earning $10,000 or less. We've increased that number 100% in American mostly public higher education. So when you talk about the social compact, I'm interested in what kinds of shared investment principles you might ask all of the partners to think about applying. And I, you know, go back to university endowments. They've been longstanding. That's how we build foundations. All of the kinds of investment principles that have worked in this country, but getting to yes is the other part of it. So just would like to hear any thoughts you have, advice for not only the federal government, but for states, for families, and for institutions. Thank you. Well, I would, yeah, I would start off first by thanking Ms. Cantor for all that you've done. And uh, you've, been, you've been an incredible ally uh, to all of us. And we, we, all, we all meet with you and you all appreciate everything you do. You know, again, in thinking about you know, broadening the compact and thinking about Pell Grants, which are just so critical, if we want to maintain a diverse student body, we have to make sure that Pell Grants remain available and uh, that we grow the, grow the program wherever it's appropriate. Again, I wonder whether a, looking to uh, foundations and uh, private uh, philanthropy, we might be able to think about creating some partnership where Pells, there's a new class of Pells that are partly supported by the federal government, maybe partly supported by the states, maybe partly supported by, by industry. And uh, just to expand the program, we recognize the federal government can't afford to fully expand the program, but maybe we can look to partnerships because that's such a critical element for those of us who uh, rely on that for many of our uh, financially underprivileged students. Oh, I, I would second that we're so deeply grateful for that commitment because it's made a huge difference for legions of families. And this notion that, that, that I think is quite intriguing, that there's no reason why we couldn't create programs that would uh, bring entities together to fund these, this, this kind of uh, opportunity for families in a new way. I mean, I know that one of the things we've worked on very hard in our and our donor community at the university is to educate our donors about need-based aid and how critical that is to our being able to offer opportunity for students who are wonderfully qualified and have, you know, you know will make, be great contributors to society, but, it, but it's part of an education process that we need to let them understand why it's so critical for the future. And uh, I think the same is true with corporations. I don't see why we couldn't create some sort of an opportunity for there to be a partnership and a buy-in. I mean, we're, anything that we can do 
to provide access and opportunity, uh, I think, is going to be extraordinarily important for our future. Well, Pell Grants uh, started as grants, then gradually ended up most of it as loans. Perhaps we could establish liberty bonds or something nationalist if it's a national crisis, if we believe it's national security. So liberty bonds to cover the rest from the loan to grant for well-qualified, outstanding students who are going to college, regardless their source of income. I say regardless because otherwise people would think you're discriminating on one group or another, but just for excellence and need. That may be one thing, because that's where my Pentagon uh, idea, uh, so li liberty bonds. And then the other thing I have to mention, I hate to do this, but I have to remind us, uh, every war we have fought since Revolutionary War, United States had a paying plan for the war. It's only now that we, we charge visa card. You know, so uh, that's, the cost of Afghanistan war is $555 billion. Perhaps now we should say, before we start any wars, we have to sequester trillion dollars and so forth on the side, and let interest go to higher education <laughs> on that. No, I'm, I'm saying some mechanism of the sort. Because we have to think fundamentally on this. Uh, we have uh, to reconstruct our own nation. We, we need that. We cannot afford to make mistakes again. Uh, even, you know, 1812 war, civil war, everything had a cost built into it. Not borrow, but now we're borrowing. And the national debt is tremendous. We have to deal with it. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. But as we deal with it, we have to find other ways to put national priorities first, our nation. If our nation is not strong, educationally healthy, and so forth, it's, we can liberate hundreds of countries, but in the process, undermine our own. Uh, so that's one of the things I want us also to put there if we go liberty bond and uh, ways. Thank you all.